0: Turn, if you will, to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. We begin in uh, 4, 14 on. Uh, He's going to keep inserting warnings right along, and we'll be coming to Hebrews 6, one of the most debated uh, passages in all the Bible. If they shall fall away, it will be impossible to renew them. Uh, So, we'll have warning passages, but he's going to pick up now the theme of Christ's high priestly ministry. He'll deal with it in 5. He's going to touch on it in 6. All of 7, he's going to describe it. In chapter 8, he's going to say he's the high priest of a new covenant. In chapter 9, he's a high priest that offers better sacrifices than animal sacrifices. Chapter 10, the benefits of his death. Then we go into the Hall of Fame. So, from chapter 5 on to 10, we're going to be looking at the high priestly ministry of Christ. Now, uh, before we read the passage, you've got to get this. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Let's look at 40 A.D., 50 A.D. Come to Jesus Christ. If I come, what do I get? I'm giving up temple. I'm giving up sacrifices. I'm giving up the priestly ministry that's being done at the temple, Day of Pentecost, Yom Kippur. I'm giving up all of this for someone that was killed by the Roman government and agreed upon by the Jewish religious leaders that this is a false messiah, this is an imposter, he's a joke. Now, you're telling me to go ahead and suffer the loss of all things, kicked out of the family tree maybe, excluded from my job, excluded from my Jewish neighborhood, the price I'm paying for being identified with this false in my community, false messiah. Wait, you mean I'm not going to have any sacrifices? I'm not going to have a priest? I'm not going to, hey, what do I get? I'm in a bad way. Is it, all I get is a criminal killed by the Roman government, and you're telling me he's God and believe the gospel. He's the cure. Not an easy thing to weigh, to go from this that I could see, I grew up with it, I was bar mitzvahed, I was raised in temple, no small thing. Leave this. Follow Christ. But what do I get? Listen to what he says. Verse, five, verse 1 of chapter 5, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. Let's let's see. He's talking about the Old Testament order of being a high priest. Four things. Four things. Notice. Number one, he must be taken from among the people. He must be one of the people he represents. Okay? He must be a man taken from among the people. Two, he must represent the people. He's not going to God just for himself. He's going to God for the people he represents. And once again, just putting in context for you, Leviticus 16, the day of atonement when the high priest went in and he bore these 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel on his breastplate. He went in representing the people he was chosen from among. And what's quite interesting, he didn't represent Philistines. He didn't represent the Amorites. He didn't represent the Edomites. He only represented Israel. We had no high priest. Only Israel did. So then... Third thing about him, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Thirdly, he must be able to sympathize with the people. And here he deals with the ignorant. In Numbers 15, he says that if you sin unintentionally, Sins of ignorance. You may have touched something that you shouldn't have touched. And you may have just fallen into sin from weakness. He goes on to say if you commit a high handed sin, which was a sin of intention, rebellion, uh, willful, he said there's no sacrifice for that. And he's going to say that same thing in Hebrews 10. If you are willfully going against God, and you're willfully rebelling. You don't want God. There's no sacrifice. But they could make sacrifices for unintentional sins. I'll give you an example. Did David commit a high-handed sin? What did he offer God as a sacrifice? All he had was himself. He cast himself. He, could, he said, I, I, there's no need of bringing you any sacrifices. None of them will atone for murder. Now I'm atone for this adultery I've done. There, no, 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 no. None of this was unintentional. I intended to do it. I cast myself on the mercies of God. All I can offer you is it's breaking my heart that I did you this way. And God forgave him. Mercy. But it wasn't the Levitical system that forgave him. There wasn't anything in the law that could get David off. Nothing. And so here he's saying. This priest is making sacrifices for the people according to Numbers 15. And so, he said, and here's another thing. This guy can't just on some day say, you know what, I want to be high priest. Oh, no, no, no. Verse 4, this honor he doesn't take on himself, he must be appointed by God. Okay? So, here, he must be a man two, taken from among the people. He must be able to sympathize with the people. And fourthly, he must be appointed by God. Now, verses 5 through 10 is going to apply this to Christ, and he's going to reverse the order. The first thing he's going to say about Christ is he was God's divinely appointed high priest. And I would take that word and change it and just make it God's divine representative for us. The high priest, when he went back in the Holy of Holies, represented the people on his breastplate, on his heart, the 12 tribes. Now we've got someone up there that represents not only Jew, but Gentile. And all who have trusted Messiah, they are now represented in heaven by him. And look what he says here about his office, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalms 2.7, when did he beget him? This word beget here is not procreation. Christ was never procreated. He never did have a beginning. That's an Aryan heresy that started in the third century. He was not a spinoff from God. He always existed. Why this begotten? This verse is used of his incarnation, and it's used of his exaltation. And so, the one being given, according to Isaiah, where a son is born, a child is born, a son is given. He was already the son of the father, which is filial, was a family affection. I want you to know the second person of the Godhead to the father. He is my son. And according to John, he shares my nature. He called God his father because he claimed equality with God, and he never refuted it. That's what the word means, not procreated, not a spinoff, But one who shares the nature of the Father. And God says, I have set you aside. I have appointed you. You are a son. You are my only one of its kind of son. And then he goes to Psalms 110, what Ryan preached on a few weeks ago. You are a priest forever. He doesn't say high priest in the original back in Psalms, but it's applied. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, whatever that is, and we'll find out in Hebrews 7, he begins to unpackage that. But you are a priest forever. Who appointed Christ to this function? God the Father, all the way back to Psalms 110. He's saying, my son is going to take over the office of high priest. He alone is going to represent my people. No longer the Aaronic priesthood, no longer anybody from the tribe of Levi, for he's from Judah. This one is the one I appoint to represent my people in the future. So on high, who represents you? No one less than Jesus Christ. He is in the throne room with God. And that throne room, you might think of it as we go along, more like a courtroom. It's where Satan charges you. It's where your sins come up before God. And someone there has to deal with this issue. Your weaknesses come up. All that's flawed about us comes up to the throne, but we have a representative. Now, second thing about our high priest. We know Christ has been appointed, but can he sympathize with us, folks? Come on. I mean, we're all flawed. We're all weak. We're all beset with sins. We're beset with all kinds of problems. How can one who is God understand somebody like you and I? I mean, uh. Does he really understand? Watch what it says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and it was heard because of his reverence. What is he saying here? It doesn't say specifically, but it's, I'm inclined with other commentators to believe this is a reference to Gethsemane, Uh, at least we have the pictures of him in Gethsemane with the agony of uh, wrestling with the cross, wrestling with the cup, wrestling with the hour that he would be turned over to men. Throughout the Gospels, they would try to arrest him or try to kill him. And this is what it would say, it is not your hour. It's not your hour. But by the time he gets to Gethsemane, he he says, it is your hour. Do with me as you will. Up to now, you couldn't kill me. One time they would start to throw him off the cliff. Watch this. He just walks through them. You tried that with a mob. Going to throw him over, exercises his deity some way. He just walks right through them. I'm God. You can't kill me a minute before my work is done. Matter of fact, that's the same thing for you. Stonewall Jackson was such an incredible soldier. And one of the reasons was he believed in predestination. And his famous line was, my life and my work is immortal till God's through with him." And one of his own men shot him. And all the smoke from the battle and all that, he wasn't shot by a Union soldier, shot by a Confederate. His work was done. The greatest cavalryman of the Civil War was just shot by his own man. But he was a predestinarian. God's got my day's number. God's got my life marked out. And here Christ is praying in the garden, and he's now saying, uh, Prayers and supplications. I'm asking for help with loud cries and tears to him. The the rabbis had different levels of praying. They called entreaties, uh, tears, loud crying. This is a desperate man. Take this cup from me. I don't want the death that's coming. It's scary. It's not, I'm on some kind of tranquilizer that I don't know what I'm facing. He's in agony of soul, perspiration that looked like blood. I don't believe it was blood, but the perspiration was so thick on his brow, you thought it was drops of blood. He's wrestling. It's agonizing. And his disciples are asleep. Nobody can help him. Nobody can rescue him. And three times God the Son says, take the cup from me, please. Take it. Is there any other way? And all the time in his ministry, I must go to the cross. I came to die. I must give up my life. But now the humanity of Christ is crying out against the assignment. He truly entered into the anguish and agony of the human experience and he's crying out to the God who was able to save him from death. Let me ask you this Did God answer his prayer? He went to the cross. Probably what he's praying is Don't let me rot. Fulfill what the psalmist said. Don't let me go to Sheol and stay there, and the skin worms eat my body. Resurrect me, get me out of the grip. I must die. I know I must die, but raise me soon. I don't want to stay in Sheol, and three days was enough. Christianity, isn't it amazing, was born in a sealed cave when God said, I'm satisfied, skin worms won't eat my son, and resurrected him, just like that. He answered his prayer. He truly did. Still went to the cross, but death cannot keep its prey, cannot even conquer death. So, he's in this agony who's able to save him. I'm in agony about the cross, and other times he went and prayed all night, staggered at the unbelief he was meeting, staggered over the pain he saw, the deaths, the leprosy, The poverty, all the people were in dire straits, and he felt their pain over and over. He felt their pain. He felt compassion. This is a sympathetic high priest that can sympathize. You come to him, I can't pay a bill. Don't worry, I've been there. Death. Don't cry at a funeral. He did. Stoics. He did, he was broken, his heart ached over Lazarus. He ached over Mary and Martha and their grief. All oh, this is a Savior that is tender emotions, tender emotions, able to sympathize. And some believers, I look in your face, I sense none of that. Maybe you're bitter. Maybe you're stuffy. It'd be great if we could advertise in our manner, in our countenance, I want to understand you. I don't want to criticize you. I'd like to understand you. But when you're consumed with yourself, you can't take much time to understand somebody else. You know, I live with back pain so long and five surgeries, and I've got a daughter that lives with it facing more surgeries, uh, just a wreck. Knees back. Chronic sufferers are sick and tired of being sick and tired, and they don't want to tell you one more time they're hurting. You just don't get enough sympathy to make it worth it. And just say, how are you feeling? Well, I feel like I did the last time. I'm in pain. Well, you said that last time. I thought you'd get over it. Get over it? You don't get over pinched nerves. You don't get over herniated discs. You don't get over chronic conditions. You don't get over. I'm kind of a wreck, but I'm here by faith. (laughs) But that doesn't mean I'm not hurting. Maxine Kyle, one of our dear African-American sisters, 95 now, she, if she was in good health, she would choke me. she never want you to know her age. Ninety-five. Little Maxine. She calls me once in a while, and this is her line. Pastor, I just can't make it out like I used to. Driving herself to church till she was 93. Morning and night. And then she says this line. I just want to say, Pastor. My spirit's willing, but my flesh is weak. Do you think God will give her a pass or not making it at 95? And the body's caving in. Jesus says, I went through such agony. Matter of fact, I bore their sicknesses. I bore their pain. And there was this model. I, I don't know how to say this. You're going to misinterpret me, but I want to say it anyway. He was sad an awfully lot, for Isaiah said he shall be called a man of sorrow. He wasn't giddy. I don't think it was a sin for him to laugh, but he was known as a man of sorrow. He was bearing the infirmities, the sorrows, the pain of the people he came among. And this is one who's known heaven, known perfect fellowship. He knew what the world was like before sin. He he knows what perfect is. He knows what perfect environment, perfect obedience, but he said, I'm going to enter so I can be touched, so I can be touched. Some of you want exemption from human suffering. You won't go to the hospital. You don't want to work with kids. You want to be into a mature Bible study in a nice house because I don't want to get dirty. Don't get too close to sinners. And God forbid anybody from the hood come because we don't want to be bothered. We want to make believe that everybody around you is going to heaven. The majority are going to hell, and I'm afraid we may not care. That's what I have to fight. As long as I go to heaven, why care if they go to hell? Jesus cares. Do you? That's the issue. The problem isn't with Jesus, it's with us. He can sympathize. He can sympathize, I think, with a man going to hell. He wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I came to gather you up as a mother hen to protect you from the hawk that's flying around and wanting to devour you in the barnyard. They'll do it, you know. I've come to gather you. I've come to love you. I've come to protect you and save you more than just from Rome, but from eternal separation from your God. I've come to gather up the children of Abraham, and I'm weeping that you won't have me. I want to represent you. I want to rescue you, and you want to kill me. I'm weeping over you, Jerusalem. My heart's crushed that you don't want me. He can sympathize. And he said he was heard because of his reverential fear. Now, watch this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What is that saying? If you're born into royalty, you can get exemption from war. If you're born into royalty, you can be exemption from the military. Although he was a son, he got no exemption from suffering. That's what it's saying. He wouldn't take it. He said, though I'm a son, though I'm the delight of my father, he still learned the experiential aspect of obeying when it costs you to obey. You know what? Most of us, Malcolm Muckerman said, Most of life's greatest lessons are learned in suffering. Any humility you got, you probably got it from a humiliating, humbling experience. Broken home, prodigal children, bankruptcy, lots of pain. You just, that's why I quote my dad so much. So much of the history had already happened before the baby boy comes along so that all that ancient history, as it were, all that suffering, 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 then I get the last 10 years of his life with all this vintage wisdom, born not reading books, but in surviving suffering. As I went to hear uh, Ellie Wazell in the YMHA, Young Men Hebrews Association, in Manhattan this last, in November, you know why you listen? You know why you put your ear to the ground? You just read Ellie's book, Night. You read about the Holocaust and how they took his mother and his sister when they got him at Auschwitz. And they took them that night. He never saw them again. But then he stayed with his old daddy. And he watched his daddy die. Watch his daddy, driven like an animal. And this young boy of 15, he said, my God died at Auschwitz. He was a young, devout Jewish boy. Probably could have been headed for being a rabbi. Very devout. But the suffering. And so when the Eli speaks up, we listen. We listen. After I see Selma, I want to hear I used to, when I spoke at the NAACP here in town, when Cynthia Marshall put me up, I said, I want somebody to represent Selma in Birmingham. And she gave me her mother, who was there when the 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed. We got Cynthia's mother to sing. And I want to tell you, you can have church by the time that old holiness woman sung who grew up in Birmingham in segregation and suffering and pain. I listen to people who've suffered. I don't listen to people who've got it all together and always had a silver spoon in their mouth. And so I listen to a Savior that suffered. You understand. You know what I'm going through. You know how to do something to aid me. Then it goes on to say, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, what is he saying? Uh, He was appointed to represent us. He's able to sympathize with us. And here it says he became perfect. How do you make perfection perfect? How do you make a God that uh, never sinned perfect? The word perfect here had the idea of completing a goal, running across the goal line. So, the interesting little Greek word teleos. It's used in maturity, and the idea is you achieve the goal. You, you became what you ought to be. And it's saying in all of his suffering, his obedience was perfect. He crossed the line. He did exactly what the Father wanted all the way up to the cross. He was perfect in his obedience. And it's not the perfection of his humanity, it's the perfection of his office. He perfectly ran the full course of representing us, even the death of a cross. He represented us perfectly. And then he says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Obeying God and believing God are used synonymously. Romans 1, 5, the obedience of faith. John 6 said, this is the work of God that you believe in his son. Faith is the work that saves. Faith is the work that saves. Now, let's, let's do a little thinking here. In Hebrews four, thirteen it says, the word of God lays you bare that you're naked before God. There's nothing to hide. He knows everything about you. And uh, we've got a high priest that represents us and offers sacrifices. He's got to do something about our sins. So, he represents us, but the Old Testament high priest had to bring sacrifices for what we've done. Now, what do we have up here? We have a representative for God's people who offers the sacrifice of himself. He doesn't bring one. He is the sacrifice, and he represents us. Now, I want you to think of this. Think of this as going to court, going to court and having sinned. Uh, and if you remember Lincoln, Lincoln says a man who defends himself in court as a lawyer has a fool for a client. Uh, They could not imagine, they could not imagine in the ancient world and even today that anybody would be so foolish as to represent themselves in court. I mean, you're charged. I know I went to court and represented myself and lost. It went this way. I had an accountant that was doing my taxes. Always put me under a Schedule A, and that was fine for me. I'm not the accountant, ought to be a Schedule C. Well, they red-tagged me five years in a row, five years. My accountant says, don't go see this local IRS rep. Uh, Found out later, he and this rep were in a spat. They didn't get along. So, I was never allowed to enter. Okay, I'm just following counsel. What this account says. Then he finally says, after the fifth time, says, You know what? Uh, we need to go to court. I can't represent you. Uh, and y- don't get a lawyer because they go easier if you represent yourself. Big mistake. Well, federal court had a circuit riding court here. Federal tax court meets in San Francisco. And the guy was out from Washington, D.C. Red headed, balding, wore glasses, and don't mess. I saw him nearly three. He, he threw out nearly two lawyers while I'm waiting my case. This one lawyer did like this. I'm just watching this. This place is packed. And this lawyer did like that. And, and the judge speaks up Mr. So and so, I will throw you out of this court if you nod your head one more time. Do you understand? I didn't come from D.C. to have a lawyer nodding to the client. Oh, I'm I'm like this now. This is the judge I'm going before. And I got my little brief, you know. And before I went into the courtroom, I'm going up and down these corridors, and all I see is about 50 different lawyers for the federal government. And they're talking to each other. And they're this and that. I think, wait. All these guys are on the side of who I'm going up against. The government says, I owe them taxes. My accountant says, I don't. And he says, I could defend myself. Do you get the picture? (laughs) This is called idiocy. And and so, I'm going there. Carolyn had the nerve to go with me. She said in the gallery. And so, Mr. Howard. Versus the United States government. I mean that very announcement. <laughs> Phil, that Mr. Howard versus the United States government and his fifty lawyers. I thought you got to be kidding. It's only two thousand dollars. Let's just pay it. So uh, I go up. I permit, present this flimsy case the best I could, and then the uh, judge. He goes to the federal lawyer. He said, sir, uh, what do you have to say? Mr. Howard owes us this much money. He has no case. Uh, that That's it. He ought to be Schedule C instead of A. I don't think his accountant knows what he's doing. This is our case. And this judge, he just points at me. He says, come here, Mr. Howard. Meet me in my chair. Oh, you know, all right. Give me the death sentence. We (laughs) go back there, and and this federal lawyer comes back with me, has me sit down. He looks at me, says, Mr. Howard, you're having bad counsel. Your accountant doesn't know what he's doing. I don't believe you're a crook. Pay us $2,500 and get out of here. Yes, sir. (laughs) Yes, sir. Never again. I fired my accountant. By the way, this was kind of fun. We stayed in court so late that the garage where my car was had been locked in, (laughs) and the federal lawyers gave me a ride home. (laughs) The guy trying me. Let me tell you what I found out. When you go to court, you better have somebody that can represent you. And when you're dealing with God, don't think you can represent yourself. He said it all the way from the Old Testament, you need a middleman if you're going to have a relationship with God. You're naked, you're guilty, you're sinful, and I don't want to hear your case without a middleman. So now I've appointed you one mediator that will represent your case and it's no one less than my son. He's taking your case. And that's what he's saying. So I have a representative on high. So what should this mean to you besides you being asleep during the sermon? Uh, What should this mean? Uh, When guilt, when weakness, when sin, when shortcoming, uh, you know, all your life you said you're ugly and you might be. Uh, You said you're a failure. You may be. Who convinced you of that? With all your hang-ups, all your hang-ups, how could I ever have a relationship with God? God says, how dare you undo the representation of my son for you? He doesn't see you guilty anymore. He doesn't see you just weak. For your standing before God is based upon his work, not yours. So, the guilt we heap on ourselves, our weaknesses, our failures, our foibles, all that's wrong with us, we have ugly days, we have ugly moods, well, come on, someday you just blew it. And you say, how in the world could I have a right standing with God? It's who's representing you. And he represents you on the basis of what he's done for you so that you walk out of the court. Not guilty, cleared, free, already paid. (laughs) And so, I don't think that's too bad. I don't think that's too bad. So, he's telling these dear believers, suffering believers, you want to go back to the Aaronic priesthood, you want to go back to temple, you want to go back to synagogue, this is the best thing you could ever have, an offering, one representing you who is the son of God, one who's been appointed by God, one in a higher order of priesthood than even Aaron. He's in a Melchizedek order, and we'll look at it later. Later. Okay, I'll tell you what we're doing. We're going to sing another song, so don't run out. What I told the music, I want to preach first before you totally wore out. So they're cutting the front, so I can go longer, not really. But then we're going to sing, and then we're going to intercede. We're trying to bring our missionaries. Do any of you know that we support 11 missionaries? Do you know anything about them? Sircar. We've got them in Romania. We've got them in Bangladesh, India, Mexico, uh, Bay Area Rescue Mission. Uh, We've been doing first resort to help uh, young ladies save their children. On and on, we've got different missionaries. Many of you don't know. You're new to this church, and we're going to give a list to you of the missionaries and what we support. But the greatest support they need besides a check is our intercession, that God will make them abound that God would protect them. God. And here's the Andersons, uh, overseeing the rescue mission for years. And so we have an affinity with that work. And we don't want you to forget it. It's easy to forget those on the front line doing missions work. But your dollar, your prayers, and your personal encouragement can make them feel like going when it's a tough day. And we want to encourage them every way we can.